Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 2, if you want to be making your way there. We're going to begin in verse 13 this morning and work our way to verse 25. And our focus this morning is remember. Um, you know, as we set out for the day, whether it's school or jobs or uh, maybe you are at a point in life where you just get to go out and run errands, there are several things that we have to remember before we leave the household. Um, and sometimes that begins with the night before. Um, sometimes we have to remember where we put our keys for the car. You ever had that searching problem at, at the, your house? See, at our house we have a drawer, and we put the keys in the drawer. Unfortunately, I'm not very good about putting the keys in the drawer. And so uh, Jamie tends to have to search around and then ask me where the keys are, and I usually respond like, well, duh, they're right there, but that's not where they're supposed to be. Um, so you have to remember where you put the keys. You have to remember to... Uh, grab your wallet or your purse. Anybody ever forget your wallet or your purse? Thank goodness. I forgot it today. All right. So, Oh, Friday. Okay. <laughs> so you're not driving illegally today. But um, <laughs> I, I've done that. I, and you would think that's a no-brainer that you grab your wallet, especially if you're driving your purse and you're going out. But we've gotten all the way to Springfield, and I've had to turn around and come back because I've forgotten to have my wallet uh, on me. Um, if you have keys for your job, you have to remember to grab those so when you get to work, you can open up the door and get into where you want to go. You uh, may be an individual who takes your lunch to work with you, so you have to remember to grab that. Otherwise, you're going to have to buy lunch while you're at. Uh, and heaven forbid we forget to grab our coffee, right? I mean, that's like the biggest no-no in the adult life is to forget your coffee and have to go either through the day getting a headache or to uh, ask someone to be kind enough to bring you your coffee. Students, you have to remember things as well. You have to remember your computer, your tablet, you know, and remember to have it plugged in overnight so it has a charge throughout the day. If, if you have any books, uh, do any of our students still have books for your classes? Some, uh, but, you know, those are slowly going away. You have to remember to make sure your books, if you brought them home, you bring them back. If you have homework, you have to make sure you turn it in on the right day or some sort of assignment. Uh, you have to make sure that you're wearing the right type of clothing for whatever particular activity you may be going through that day. And if you forget, you can be uncomfortable. During this week, I'm, I'm happy about this time of year. We have to remember to grab a jacket, right? I love this weather where you can uh, decide if you want to freeze, if you open up your windows or, or not, but you want to make sure you're warm enough. And coming to church this morning, you had to remember to bring your Bible or to bring whatever instrument you use to read God's Word. Some of y'all had to remember to bring a pen and something to write on if you're one of those avid note takers. Maybe you had to remember to bring your offering. And of course, you had to remember to drink your coffee before you came, right? That's a very important thing. Perhaps you have a crock pot at home or an oven and it's going. So you had to remember to put the food in. So when you arrive back at home, the food would be ready to eat. With all things we have to remember in life, and you can go into social security numbers and driver's license numbers and uh, whatever. 2020 has brought some new challenges to remember. And one thing I have to tell my wife, Jamie, and our kids almost every morning before they head out the door is, did you remember to grab a mask? And it, it, I'm, I'm actually happy that they haven't got into the habit where like, it's just automatic to grab a mask and as they head off to school or they head off to work. And I hope at some point in my lifetime, in our lifetime, the mask mandate will go away. But that's something we've had to add to the list of remembering as we leave. 
Do I have a mask? And where I'm going, do they require a mask? You know, there's times in Springfield that we have forgotten to have a mask going to business, so we actually have a box in the glove compartment of just masks. They aren't as comfortable as the other ones we have. But, you know, there's a lot of things we have to remember in life. And the same thing goes with our Christian life and our walk with God and our relationship with God. There are things that we have to remember, yet we are tempted to forget, which become very dangerous in our relationship with God. We cannot forget what we are here for. We cannot forget who we are, and we cannot forget what God has done. And so we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to see how forgetting things causes problems and issues with God, and so we must remember these things. We're going to begin in verse 13, we'll read through verse 25, and then we'll walk through it together. Well, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Just a quick side note. The Bible always, always refers as going up to Jerusalem because it sat on a hill. It doesn't mean they were going north or south. Uh, it's just a reference of going up the mount to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew was what was in man. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have rescued us from our sins. For those here this morning who may not understand what that means or have yet to begin a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, Father, I pray your Spirit would open their eyes to see, give them ears to hear, and a heart that is softened to accept your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this place we're able to gather in your name for your glory, that your kingdom and would come and will would be done in our life. We pray for strength as the tempter tries to come and pull us away from you, to drive our focus off of you. Father, we would love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength in this time, that you alone would be glorified. So, Father, open your scriptures by the power of your Spirit for your name's sake and for your glory, that we may be transformed more into your likeness, that we may know who we are in you, and how that is meant to drive us as we live out in this world. Again, thank you for just allowing us to worship you through songs. And thank you for this time we're allowed to gather once again in your name, by your mercy, to enter into your throne room of grace. And pray it's all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're dealing with the cleansing of the temple. And before we dive into the passage, there's a question we must ask 
concerning the other Gospels, particularly with this series. This series is Tell Me the Story of Jesus, where we're taking the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're putting them together to get this beautiful image of Jesus' ministry and the meaning it is to have in our life. So here's the question we have to ask when dealing with John's Gospel concerning this particular event. Did Jesus cleanse the temple once or twice? So, who here is in the camp that Jesus cleansed it once? Twice. I don't know, Pastor Mike, you tell me. All right, good. <laughs> All right, so here's the thing. You can go on the internets, the interwebs. You can go on Google search. I did this just for the fun of it. And you can type in that question, did Jesus cleanse the temple once or twice? And you're going to find biblical articles by biblical scholars that will sit on both sides of this question, that it was one time or it was two times. Some say that Jesus did it once. And so what John is doing, what he's led by the Spirit to do in his gospel, is to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus was in the beginning. That's how the gospel of John actually begins, pointing to how God was in the beginning. Jesus came to dwell among his people, just as God came and engulfed Mount Sinai and dwelled among his people. Jesus performed miraculous uh, interventions, just as God did in the Old Testament. Jesus uh, had the Spirit of God dwelling on Him, just as God's Spirit dwelled in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the Old Testament. In our passage, Jesus Himself said that He is the temple of God, fulfilling God's presence, being among His people, as in the Old Testament. So if John is taking that approach, and that's the way the Spirit led him, then that makes perfect sense. I happen to be in the camp that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of His ministry here in the Gospel of John, and again three years later at the end of His ministry, which the Synoptic Gospels record. Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And here's why. When you look at the four accounts, so you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you look at the Gospel of John's. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have almost identical languages. They almost have identical words that Jesus spoke. They almost have identical actions of Jesus. They place the timing of the event at the exact same time at the end of Jesus' ministry as He's preparing for His crucifixion and resurrection. And it has almost identical responses to Jesus. Now John's recording of the event has several differences. First, John records this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is Jesus' first Passover. Throughout the Gospel of John, John breaks Jesus' ministry up by the three Passovers that Jesus uh, attended. First one here in the beginning, there's one in the middle of his ministry, and there's a final Passover, which is the one he went to Jerusalem for the last time to be crucified and then to resurrect. But there are other differences when we look at the four Gospel writings. In John's Gospel, Jesus is immediately questioned in the form of a rebuke here in verse 20, or not 20, verse 18, in the form of a rebuke by the course of his actions that he took. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is questioned, but it's not in the form of rebuke. It's in the form of the way the people are responding to Jesus. Because after three years of Jesus' ministry, He had been gaining momentum within that ministry, and people were starting to come to believe who He, in fact, truly was. In the Synoptic Gospels, 
Jesus rebukes the money changers, much like He does here in the Gospel of John, but then He rebukes them, and we may be more familiar with that passage, when He tells them not to make God's house, God's house is to be a house of prayer, and they are making it into a den of robbers. Yet in John's Gospel, Jesus says something completely different. It means something completely different. He says, not to make my Father's house a house of trade or a house of market. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus simply quotes and speaks from His authority. In John's Gospel, Jesus goes all Indiana Jones on them, right? He gets this cord of rope and cords, and He begins thrashing it so they get out of there. And so there's subtle differences, but for me, they're enough to conclude that Jesus cleansed the temple twice within His ministry. And we have to remember that if He did it twice, this at the very beginning of His ministry, and then three years later, well, three years is a long time to forget. How many of y'all remember what I preached three years ago? I don't either, so don't worry about it. Uh, but I'm just saying, we forget things overnight. We forget things in a week or in a month from year to year. And so three years is a long time for people to get back into their habits of what they have been doing. And you may not agree with me on that matter, and that's fine. We can agree to disagree. Like I said, there are, are strong biblical scholars on both sides of the camp of whether Jesus did it once or twice. And so whether we agree about that is not, isn't really an issue when we come to our passage. It's just to warn you... In a couple years, when we come back to Jesus cleansing the temple, and you think to yourself, huh, I think we've preached on this before, we've heard this before, you need to come back to October 18th in the podcast and listen to this portion of the sermon to understand why we're doing it twice. Okay? Now, what is going on in the passage, and what is it calling us to remember? The passage begins in verse 13, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many of us here are probably familiar with what the Passover is. It, but just in case, just in case we need a refresher or a reminder or we just need this new information. If you go into the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, God sends a man by Moses into Egypt to deliver his people, the Israelites, from bondage of slavery. He does this through ten plagues. The very last plague became known as the Passover. And what that plague was is the Israelites would put the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost and the Spirit of the Lord would pass over their house and he would, uh, he would rescue them from their slavery. If the blood of the Lamb was not over the doorpost, then the firstborn of that household would die. Now it was this plague which moved Pharaoh to allow the Israelites to leave the land to which God had intended for them to do. And so the Passover became a week celebration. It lasted an entire week every single year for the Jewish people except when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. They did not celebrate the Passover and they also did not do the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. But once they began to get into land they reestablished the Passover and they did that from here on out even when they went into exile remembering that God passed over them. He delivered them. This is what the Passover was set up for. A week-long celebration of remembering this from Exodus 13 3 this day in which you came out of, from Egypt out of the house of slavery for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place it was a celebration to remember and to also to teach the next generation how God had redeemed his people he had delivered his people not because of anything they have done but simply because God was faithful to his promises which he gave to Abraham back in Genesis 
Now, as Jesus comes to the Passover, and the language is the Passover was at hand, meaning it was getting ready to begin. So as Jesus and disciples are coming into Jerusalem, they most likely should expect people to be preparing for this yearly event that lasted an entire week to celebrate God's mighty hand of deliverance. But if you notice, when Jesus goes into the temple, he finds that the people are not preparing for the Passover, but instead they're preparing for profit. So Jesus' reaction is because what is going on is the people are not making this event about God, which that's what is supposed to be focused on and to be taught about. Instead, they're making this event about their wallet. The people had forgotten what they were there for. And this is a danger we can all have. We must remember what we're here for. The mentioning of the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons in the temple is significant. At Passover, the Jewish people would come and they would have to offer sacrifices. And so each sacrifice was a level of income and the type of sacrifice that was going to be required of them by God to make. So the wealthy would give an oxen or the cattle. The middle class would give sheep. The lower income or the poor would give pigeons and doves. And since the Jewish people were spread around the known world ever since the exile of the Old Testament, they would have to pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for this event. And every righteous male Jew would come back every single year to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And many times they would bring their families, as we saw Mary and Joseph doing with Jesus when he was a young child. But since they had to travel long distances, they wouldn't bring the sacrifice required of them to Jerusalem because it was dangerous. The sacrifice had to be perfect, without blemish, without defect. And to travel with the sacrifice, there's a good chance something could happen along the way. And so when they would come into Jerusalem, there would be markets outside the temple to which they could buy whatever sacrifice was required of them before they came into the temple. The problem that arose is that the priests developed this system that inside, what is, inside what's known as the court of Gentiles, they set up their own market. And so in there, there would be money changers and people selling the sacrifices that are required. And since a sacrifice had to be perfect, without blemish, without defect, and the priests would get a cut of the inside temple, they would bring in the sacrifice from outside, and the majority of times they would say, there's a problem with this sacrifice, so you need to buy from in here. And so an individual would have to buy once or twice, and inside the temple, the prices were inflated. Well, Jesus comes into the court of Gentiles, and this is the place where someone who is converted, converted to Judaism, who has come into the, the covenant relationship with God, though they were not naturally born a Jew, this is where they would be able to come and worship God and to meet with God and hear the word of God. But instead of being able to do that, these people who were seeking God, the place of their worship had been turned into a place of trade. It turned into a market. And so Jesus' anger is because they have completely forgotten what they were here for at the Passover. The priests themselves have begun setting up boundaries and hindrances to God's own people so that they could be restored in a relationship with God so they could worship Him the way God had commanded them to. So Jesus begins tossing tables and, and makes a whip. The issue leading Jesus' response is that the people were doing what God had commanded them to do. But then the people who were to be leading them to God, the priests, were hindering that. So they were getting in the way. They had forgotten what they were there for. 
They were making something that was supposed to be all about God, completely nothing about God. In reality, we can be in danger of doing the same thing when we forget what we are here for. Let's just begin in this moment. Where are we right now? Where'd you wake up and come to on Sunday morning? Church. All right. All right, good. So where are we right now? All right, now that we all are awake and we know where we are. If you wake up later and you don't know where you are, I'm sorry. But right now we know we're at church. According to God's Word, God defines the church not as a building. God defines the church as a gathering of His people. And that can happen anywhere at any time. We happen to meet on Sunday because in the New Testament, in the Bible, Sunday became known as the Lord's Day. It was the day to which they remembered Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And so when we gather as the church, as God's people in this beautiful building which God has provided, it is to remember that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and by our faith in Him, God passed over the judgment that was due us. And so we are here, according to Scripture, to form the body of Christ, the physical representation of Jesus Christ in the world. When the world sees the church, the gathering of God's people, they should see and experience Jesus. We are also, according to Scripture as the church, the bride of Christ. Meaning we belong to Him and we submit to His authority that He speaks to us through His Word. What this means is, in forgetting what we are here for, we can be tempted to believe we're actually here for us. That's what they're doing at the Passover. And we can come to this place forgetting that we are in fact here for God. The church is not about our preferences. It's not about our desires. We come to church to worship God. Period. We come to church to gather under the promises of God's Word that when two or more are here, we are in the presence of the Holy of Holies. This place in any church gathering has nothing to do with the individual preaching the message. It has nothing to do with what songs are being sung up here. It has nothing to do with even who is leading those songs. This place has nothing to do with where you have assigned your seat. And I, I love how I'm able to keep attendance by looking around and seeing who's not here because you all sit in the same spot. But I've been in places where there have been individuals who felt that their seat was the most important thing about a Sunday morning, and even if a visitor sat there, they let them know, that's my seat. It has nothing to do with where you assigned your seat. It has nothing to do with what you're wearing at this moment. We're just glad you're wearing something. It has nothing to do with catching up with people who you may or may not have seen since last week. It has nothing to do with hooking up with someone that you like. It doesn't have to do even with this. It doesn't have to do with nursery. It doesn't have to do with children's church. It doesn't have to do with a strong youth program. Those, those are lures that bring people to church. The church has existed and grown and flourished 
before nursery, before children's church, and before a youth program ever existed. But we can be tempted to make it about what we want rather than what God wants in this moment. And so our hearts and our eyes and our ears are more tuned to us than to the God who wants to speak to us. If we forget why we're here, this place has to be about God. It has to be about putting His name on display. It is for His glory and for His kingdom. No one else. Okay, so we're physically right now in this moment at church, but we live on planet Earth. So why are we here? We aren't here to get a paycheck. We aren't here to have a nice home. We aren't here to have a good vehicle, nice clothes, go on vacation, or be involved in any extracurricular activity. You know how I know that? Because Jesus didn't have any of those things. We may have them. God may bless them, bless those things to us, but we are here as God's people to represent God's glory and His great name. So in the church, it's about God. And when we leave this place in a little bit, guess what it's still about? God. God has left us here. He desires for us to be in His presence that's his desire. He wants us to be home with him. But until that time comes, he has left us here so we can proclaim his glory. So other people can know that there's a God who loves them that wants to pass over their sins just as he has done ours. But when we make this life about us, we fail to show the world who we are in fact wanting to live for and who saved us. We are here for God. We go to work for God. Students, you go to school for God. You begin relationships and are in relationships for God. We raise our kids for God. We love our grandkids for God. It's all about Him and all about putting Him on display. In our passage, the Jewish people forgot what they were at the Passover for. They also, in forgetting what they were there for, they had forgot what God had done. And we can be in the same place. We must remember what God has done. The Passover was set in place, scripturally defined, as a time for God's people to remember God's mighty hand of deliverance over their life and then to teach the younger generation what God had done in delivering His people. Again, not because they deserved it or earned it, but because God was faithful to His covenantal promises. And as we come to this place and as we go out into the world, we must remember what God has done in our own life. We, like the Jewish people, have been redeemed and delivered from bondage. Theirs was a physical bondage of sin. We are the, the spiritual bondage of, of sin. There's the physical bondage of slavery. We are the spiritual bondage of sin. Theirs was something to bring them out of a location. Ours was to bring us out of an eternal destination. God has saved us. He has put all of our deserving wrath upon His Son, Jesus. And by our faith in Christ alone, God has redeemed us. And so what we are here for is to remember what God has done so we might proclaim what God has done to other people. But if I forget why I'm here, that it's about God, then I'm probably going to forget what God has done because my mind is somewhere else. The Bible says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, meaning God loved us first. He, he came for us first. We didn't take the action. 
And God did this. He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means to turn away of anger by offering of a gift. That gift is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, that when He died on the cross and said, it is finished, He was saying that He is the gift to turn away God's wrath for our sin that we deserve and by placing our faith in Christ alone in His death for our sins and His resurrection over the grave, God passes over us, and that's what God has done for us. We can never forget that our worship will become stale, our preaching will become stale, our mission as a church will become stale. If we forget what God has done, we have no message to give. We have no message to share. We have no song to sing. In this passage, Jesus is so frustrated with the God's people had made something that was never intended to be. He brings out this whip of cords that also can be read as, as ropes. And he drove them all out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, verse 15. But you notice, look in verse 18. Do you see how the Jewish people responded to Jesus' words and actions? They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things. By their questioning of Jesus, they were saying they thought Jesus was in the wrong. They were questioning His authority on why He was doing what He did, and they wanted Him to prove it through a sign that He had any authority to do what He just did. Again, the word sign in the Gospel of John means a miracle. They wanted Jesus to entertain them, to show them something magnificent, so they could understand why He even did what He did. They had forgotten that they, what they were here for. They had forgotten what God had done for them, and they had forgotten who they were. According to the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were people set apart by God to be holy because God is holy. And yet the Jewish people are so insulted that Jesus comes into the place of holiness and calls people to be holy because they had forgotten who they were. And if we forget, we're in danger. We must remember who we are. Jesus answered their accusation of speaking of the temple and how He would destroy this temple in three days and then rise again. He's speaking metaphorically of His death and resurrection, which John points out there in verse 21. And if you notice, in, in verse uh, 22, His disciples remembered it when He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. But the Jewish people were in the midst of this identity crisis. Jesus was not. The reality is we can all wrestle with identity because this world tries to identify us by certain things in so many ways. I don't know if you watched the Supreme Court, whatever you want to call it, thing going on this week, but politicians were trying to identify Barrett by her religious ties, her understanding of the Constitution, her family, the way she raised her kids, and her ethical views. They were trying to place an identity on her. And we do this in our own nation. Polit politicians are identified by what party they are tied to. And that party is to direct the choices they make in life and the laws they put forth. Who are we, though? Who are you? 
This is a question I had to ask myself at the age of 19 when I had made so many mistakes outside of God's will and so many things started coming to, uh, to sight and understanding. I literally looked myself in the mirror not knowing who I was. I claimed to believe this, but I lived nothing like it. Who are we? Who are you? My identify sells through a relationship status. Well, I'm married, I'm divorced, I'm widowed, I'm dating somebody. Sometimes we identify ourselves by what job we hold. Well, I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I'm a policeman. We can identify ourselves by where we live. Hi, I'm Mike from Stratford. Hi, I'm, I'm from Missouri. Here in Stratford, people identify themselves by what family they belong to. And it's up to people who aren't from Stratford to figure out what family that actually is. So thank you. <laughs> we, we can identify ourselves by what activities we like to do or what things we're involved with. I play football. I'm in the theater. I like to sing. I like to do sports. We can identify ourselves by what nation we're born into. And if we go overseas, we'll say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an American. And we can do this all the time by identifying ourselves with things that aren't really our identity. It kind of reminds me of this scene from a movie, Anger Management. Tell us about yourself. Who are you? Well, I'm a, an executive assistant at a major pet products company. Dave, I don't want you to tell us what you do. I want you to tell us who you are. Oh, all right. Um, I'm a pretty good guy. I, um, I like playing tennis on occasion. Uh, also, not your hobbies, Dave. Just simple. Tell us who you are. I just... Maybe you could give me an example of what a good answer would be. Um... I think we can get frustrated when we place our identity in something outside of God's Word. And we try, and then we... Because we can lose those things. When I was in high school, I was a football player. Well, I don't play football anymore. If I try to go pick up a game, I would be sore for the rest of the week. But we can identify ourselves through relationships. We can identify ourselves through friendships or where we live or where we're from. And we can get frustrated because sometimes those things fade away. Who we are has already been identified by God. It's, it's already in here. It's been eternalized. It's, it's solidified forever. And the Bible says this, there are only two types of people who are actually on this planet. Two types, that's it. There's saved and there's unsaved. It doesn't come down to gender, race, creed, ethical points of view, political ties. You're either saved or you're not saved. If you're not saved, the Bible defines you as an individual who is separated from God, and at this point, for eternity. And this is because of your sin. But if you're here and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are saved. And that means God identifies you as an individual who has been restored back into a relationship with Him and has been completely redeemed and completely clothed in righteousness. 
So that's the only type of people we actually encounter. That's the only identities that we encounter in this world. But then the Word of God also identifies His people in a much deeper way. And I'm just going to rip it from a movie. And it's from the movie Overcomer on how we should identify us through God's Word. I am created by God. He designed me. So I'm not a mistake. His son died for me. Just so I could be forgiven. He picked me to be his own. So I'm chosen. He redeemed me. So I am wanted. He showed me grace just so I could be saved. He has a future for me because he loves me. So I don't wonder anymore, Coach Harrison. I am a child of God. Amazing how I think the world is attacking the very identity that God has spoken over us. We are wanted. We are chosen. We are loved. We are known. We are accepted by the one who has the final word. Again, not because of what we have done to deserve it or earn it, but simply because God loves us and is merciful and faithful to his word. We are children of God. And we are now the temple of the living God and representative of God's glory and love that He wants all people to know. And so we don't forget these things. Why we're here. Who we are. We must remember God's Word. Passover was about remembering. And twice in our passage the disciples remembered. The first time in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. You see what the disciples remembered? They remembered God's word. This particular passage comes out of Psalm 69, verse 9. Psalm 69 is a psalm of an individual crying out to God because they're going through a midst of pain and suffering. And as they go through this difficult time, the people around them are taking advantage of their suffering. But in the midst of the psalm, as they're struggling with all that is around them, the psalmist's focus goes from suffering and how people are responding to their suffering to focusing on the goodness of God. In verse 16 of that psalm, it says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. And how did the psalmist be able to make this sort of cry in the midst of their suffering? Because the psalmist understood that's what God did for Israel in Exodus, in Egypt. They cried out to God and God delivered them because of His steadfast love. And disciples, as they're looking back at this account and remembering, they're now realizing this is what Jesus is doing for us. As we cry out to God in the midst of this world that is suffering, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of a world that people are taking advantage of other people's suffering, we know that God is good and He is loving and He is steadfast and He is faithful. And so we can focus on Him and who He is. 
We've got to change our focus, but it begins by getting into God's Word. Then they remember when Jesus spoke of the temple, they go back and remember what Jesus actually meant in verse 22. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture or the Word, and the Word that Jesus had spoken. The sign or miracle that the Jews came to Jesus will give us a sign for your authority because you're wrong in doing this. That's what the Jews thought. The disciples received that sign of Jesus' authority and his power, to, his power to do what he did because they remembered God's spoken word concerning this event. Our purpose, identity, and certainty in this world can only be found through the word of God. And so for this reason, as God's people, we must be people of the Word. We must cling to this and allow this to define us. Charles Spurgeon wrote, You need not bring life to the Scripture. You should draw life from the Scripture. It is the Word that became flesh which gives us life. It is the living Word of God which, can, which holds us and carries us. It's the living Word of God which we can hold in our hand or we can place in our pockets, and we live in a place where we can open it up any time of our choosing, anywhere we go, and we can read God's Word. God's Word is what is to give us meaning and purpose and understanding to see this world for what it really is. It is a world in the midst of pain and suffering because it's a world that has tried to push God out. So when we're in doubt, take God's Word out. That was what I was going for, out. When we're in doubt, take God's word. I guess it's, I thought it was a good saying, but you all obviously don't. Right. <laughs> back, to, back to the passage. The Passover feast had finally begun, verse 23. And many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. We don't know what signs those were. Maybe it was his teachings, his authority through the word of God, but John doesn't elaborate on them. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What these final verses are saying in our passage is that the people believed Jesus because what he could do, but they did not believe Jesus for who he was. They believed Jesus for what he could do for them, but not that Jesus was their Savior that they needed. And Jesus knew that about them. He knew they had a fake faith. He knew that they had flattering hearts that were trying to appease Him. And so that's why He says He did not entrust Himself to them. He wasn't going to fall to their fake flatteries because He knew their true intentions. He knew their hearts. And yet with this passage... If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then Jesus now knows what is in us. His Spirit. Inside of every believer who has confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who has accepted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and the promise of eternal life, God has placed His Spirit inside of them. He has entrusted Himself to us. We have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus. And the reason we have God's Spirit is so we can remember who we represent. We kind of hit on this earlier. But God has given us His Holy Spirit so we might bear witness about Jesus 
to this world. Jews at the temple had forgotten what the Passover represented. They forgot who they were and who they were because of what God had done. They'd forgotten God's word that spoke of this event and they made it something that was never intended to be. In doing so, they forgot what this time was to represent and who they were to represent to future generations. And so we must never forget as we head out into this world who we represent. We leave the gathering of God's people, the church, to go out into God's world in His name with the good news of Jesus Christ. And God has empowered every child of His with His Spirit to do this. There is an empowerment in us to be the light and salt that Scripture commands us to be. There is an empowerment in us to be the representative of Christ and allow Christ to implore or speak through us. And so if we as God's people forget who we represent in this world, then we as God's people cannot watch the news and complain. If we are not representing God, if we are not delivering the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are not proclaiming the love of God and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ to this world, then when we watch the news and it makes us heart sick, we can't complain about it. Because we're not doing anything about it to remedy it. Jesus Christ is the only thing that can fix this world. It's not going to be a 2020 election. It's not going to be another stimulus package. It's only Jesus Christ. And God has empowered us. Look around you. You are sitting by people who are empowered by God to speak His truth, to speak His love, so this world can, in fact, change. If we forget who we are and who we represent as a church, then we shouldn't expect anybody to ever be saved again at Harvest Hill. Because who we represent is the God of love and grace and mercy who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world. That's what we represent as a church. That's what we want people to know. We do everything for His glory and for His name so people might come into relationship with Him. I don't know about you, but I'm forgetful at times. I forget to take things I know I need and that are necessary for my day. There are times I've come to church into my office and I turn around and go back to the house because I've forgotten something there that I need for my studies. But even greater, there are times I've forgotten what God's Word tells me to remember. And maybe you're here this morning and you've done the same thing. You need to come before the Father and just confess, Lord, I forgot. I forgot who I am as defined by you. I forgot why I'm here as defined by you. I forgot who I represent when I leave this place as defined by you. And I need your forgiveness for that. Here's the awesome thing. God's going to forgive us. He actually already has, but he wants us to confess those, to, to say that we realize we've done something outside of his will. But perhaps you're here and you've come to understand that you're one of two types of people. And you're not saved. You're not in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You, you, maybe you've gone to church. Maybe you even own a Bible. Maybe you listen to Christian radio. But you have not begun a relationship with Jesus Christ by admitting to God that you're a sinner. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of glory of God. That's everybody. We all fall short of God's holiness, His perfection. And that sin is going to separate us from God for eternity unless we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. That's it. We place our faith and our trust in that. 
And the Bible says, when I believe that in my heart and I confess it with my mouth, I will be saved. From sinner to saint, from not saved to saved. All by a simple act of faith. If you're here this morning and that's what you need to do to begin a relationship with God, to be defined by God in a new way, I'm going to stand down here. I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. Maybe you're here and you know you've been having some amnesia spiritually. And you need to come and confess that to God and, and, and repent and allow God to restore you. This is time and response. I'm going to ask Nick and Jackson to come up and lead us in a song. to Sing the praises that he lives so we can face whatever tomorrow brings. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day, for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for your word, for your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, thank you that your word continues to call us to remember what you have done, what you speak over us. Father, forgive us the times we forget. We're tempted to make it something other than what you have already ordained. Father, I pray in this time that you alone be glorified as we respond to the word you've spoken to our hearts. Father, for the individuals here this morning who are not your children, they do not belong to you. Lord, that your spirit would reveal that, that they would be able to remove any question of their eternal destination. And from brothers and sisters of Christ, I know we're all in the same camp that we tend to forget. Lord, forgive us for forgetting who you have proclaimed us to be and what you have commissioned us to do. And pray us all in the name of Jesus. Amen.